Hey there, welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well. Hey everyone, welcome to Pickled Parables. I am Michael Turtlelot, and today we're going to look at 2 Peter 2. And since this is Pickled Parables, I'm going to start by sharing one of Jesus' parables that has been a lot of help to me. It's popularly known as the parable of the wheat and the tares, or some Bibles will head this section as the parable of the weeds. Either way, it's found in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, which goes like this. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed, good seed, in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. A little later, Jesus goes on to explain the meaning of the parable in verses 27 through 43 of that same chapter. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, as you could probably gather, Jesus tells this parable to get at the reality that the world is currently a mixed bag. And while the parable is mostly addressing the mix of righteous and unrighteous people in the world, it doesn't take a whole lot of soul-searching to discover that it's not just the world that's a mixed bag, but we ourselves are mixed bags of good and evil. This reality is one of the most frustrating reality for Christians, for we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we feel tension and disappointment when we look around ourselves and look inside ourselves and see that we still have a ways to go before that hope is realized. But rest assured, it will be realized. The day will come when Jesus returns and sorts it all out. And what a relief that will be. But until then, we're stuck in this tension. And Jesus sort of says, yeah, that's how it's going to be. 
Don't worry about it. We'll deal with it in the end. Apparently, wrestling with this tension is good for us in some way. And so, here we are, living in that tension. I bring all this up because it is this tension that Peter is wrestling with, really in both of his epistles. And he's trying to help his fellow Christians know how to live within that reality. In his first letter, Peter called his readers to remember that they are God's chosen people, but a chosen people in exile. And so they were going to have to live in countercultural ways because of that exile. They weren't living in their homeland. Now, in his second letter, Peter addresses the mixed bag reality as it pertains to the church. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter calls his readers to confirm their calling to Christ. And he does this by telling them to remember what he and the other apostles and other faithful teachers had told them about Jesus. He says, they didn't come up with a clever myth about Jesus. They simply reported what they had witnessed themselves. Things like Jesus' transfiguration, during which they heard the audible voice of God declaring Jesus to be his beloved son. Peter encourages them to remember the truth about Jesus on which their faith was originally built, especially in light of the troubling reality of false teachers, which he addresses in chapter 2. Beginning with verses 1 through 3, he says, But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter basically says, just like there were false prophets back in Old Testament times that sought to lead Israel astray, so too there will be false teachers in the church who will seek to lead people astray. This is a real bummer, but it's actually the false teachers themselves who will bear the brunt of that bummer. It's clear from the outset of this chapter that these guys have it coming to them in the end. And yet, the fact remains that they are going to lead people astray, which means we would do well to pay attention to some of the things that identify them. For instance, some of them will deny Jesus, according to verse 1. So here's my advice for you based on that verse. If a pastor, preacher, or teacher denies that Jesus is the God-man and the Savior of the world, don't listen to them. Maybe think about switching churches unless they're getting heartily rebuked or something. Hopefully that's an obvious one. Less obvious signs that you're dealing with a false teacher from these verses include a tendency towards sensuality. That is, a faith that just focuses on making you feel good. Or also greed, a couple other identifying characteristics of false teachers. Hopefully, as a kid, your parents told you never to get in a car with a stranger who offers you candy. Well, here, Peter is giving us the spiritual equivalent of that good advice 
Don't go along with a spiritual leader who tells you Jesus just wants you to feel good and pay him, the spiritual leader, a lot of money. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeling good. There's nothing wrong with being generous towards spiritual leaders. But leaders who make those things the primary focus are false. But what about the damage that these teachers do? What are we supposed to do about that? Peter gets at that in verses 4 through the first half of verse 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So, Turns out, God has some experience protecting his people while at the same time making sure the wicked get their just desserts. You see, the world has been a mixed bag for a long time. Actually, as soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, bad decision-making entered the makeup of reality. The compounding of that bad decision-making over the millennia has afforded God a lot of practice at rescuing the people who follow him while punishing those who rebel against him. And so, like Jesus, Peter essentially tells us to not worry so much about sorting it all out in the here and now, but rather he tells us to trust God to sort it out in the end. He basically says, God knows what he's doing. And this is the foundation of biblical hope, peace, and justice. As God declares elsewhere, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And in the end, that ought to be enough for us. Our hope rests there, not in our ability to root out every false teacher or make sure every wrong is righted in the here and now. But that doesn't mean that we should be ignorant of what false teachers look like. Helpfully, Peter gives us a pretty good picture of them in the second half of verse 10 through verse 16. Bold and willful... They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
According to this section, false teachers are bold, willful, blasphemous, irrational, instinctual, ignorant, revelers, deceptive and deceived, adulterous, insatiable for sin, manipulative, greedy, wayward, and they enjoy gain for wrongdoing. It's quite the list. And FYI, if you ever have to be corrected by a donkey, you're doing something wrong. The same is true for those who get compared to the guy who had to be corrected by a donkey. False teachers are loud, stupid, uncontrolled, selfish, and without conscience, a bit like donkeys themselves. Now compare that to a spirit-filled leader who is loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. It's a pretty stark contrast. You should reject the former and follow the latter kind of teacher because the former actually has nothing to offer you but destruction. As Peter says in verses 17 through 22, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The real folly of false teachers is seen in the fact that they will loudly and confidently declare they can set you free while they themselves are actually enslaved to their sin. And yet, they may have actually convinced themselves that they know what's right and good. And that is why it's folly. Because of their self-delusion, they're actually working for their own destruction when they think they're working for their own benefit. Back in verses 12 and 13, it says that they will, quote, be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. It's poetic justice. The path they are on doesn't lead anywhere good, despite their vehemence that it does. And woe to the one who follows them on it. Such teachers and leaders are an unfortunate and plentiful reality in the world today, and even in the church today. How many famous pastors cater to the whims and wishes of the fallen human heart because they know it will help them afford a private jet? How many pastors spend years preaching the way to freedom only to have it come out that they have been enslaved to their ego or their lust? or their greed all along. How many loud, assertive, arrogant, manipulative preachers there are with large followings. 
How few it seems there are of those who quietly and faithfully serve God's people, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The humble rarely make the headlines. The virtuous rarely go viral. And yet it is they who faithfully direct others to the way of eternal life. And they don't do it by devising a clever myth. They do it by reminding God's people of what God has done and who he is. As Christians, I'm convinced we don't need anything new. We need to realize the infinite importance of those things we've heard about a million times. Which means we don't need flashy, false teachers to tell us something we've never heard before. We need faithful, humble teachers to remind us of the things we've forgotten and to deepen our understanding of how important those things are. Things like, Jesus is God, and he became a man. He lived the perfect life we could never hope to live, the only kind of life that satisfies God's holy standard. And yet, despite this perfect righteousness, he died a rebellious sinner's death on a cross, Why? So that sinners who deserved that death might experience the rewards of his perfect righteousness instead. And how do we know such an exchange is available to us? Because Jesus rose from the dead and told his followers to spread the word that forgiveness of sin was available through him for those who repent. This was the beginning of a new creation and a new kingdom. We can now die to the old creation and live in the new creation, growing in the eternal life Jesus made available to those who trust in him. As Peter said in verse four of chapter one of this second letter, we have been invited to, quote, become partakers of the divine nature. Remember these things. Grow in them. Listen to the leaders who remind you of these things, and you will do well. At least, so Peter would tell you. Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusty Bible. To stay up to date with all things Parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.